Welcome to the Cherry Hills Podcast. We are in a series called Work and Rest, where we are exploring these life-giving rhythms God has designed for us. Thanks for joining us. Well, we are in a series called Work and Rest. It's a nine-week series, and we're in week four. We're spending the first five weeks talking about work, and the next four will be about rest after that. And last week, Pastor Brian taught us about holy intent. He said that one of the things that we need to understand is that we are made to work in such a way that we work for God and work for his glory. And we need to pray each day, God, help me to work with that motivation, that kind of intention, now that you have come into my life. And we started this series by just talking about the fact that although many people think that work is just a necessary evil and act like it, that God wants us to go all the way back to the beginning and understand that we were made to work. It's actually a good thing. I actually invited you to say work is good for me that day. And when we think about it, it's actually probably something that if we're not doing some kind of work, we're not necessarily living according to the way God made us. The second week, though, we looked at how work, though, because of the fall, because sin has entered into the world, work can be frustrating at times. Therefore, we need to adjust our expectations and realize that even on this side of heaven, work will never, ever be as completely, perfectly fulfilling as we want it to be. If we try and find our identity in work, we'll still be dissatisfied. But that we can live with a new storyline, that we can realize that God is in the process of redeeming and restoring the world, and he wants to work in and through us in a new way. He wants us to do all of life, including our work with him. So today I want to talk to you about a subject that's really affected me. I told you that um, in the last couple years, two or three years, I have been uh, helping to lead a group of people in our community, uh, along with Mike O'Shea, through a book called Every Good Endeavor. And I'm going to talk to you more about that later in the series. But in this book that's become so shaping and formative, not only for Mike, but also for me, Timothy Keller introduces a subject called common grace. And let me just set that up a little bit today by saying to you, here's one of the questions I want to answer today in this message. How do we work alongside non-Christians? If God has placed us in this world, what do we do? For instance, let me give you an example. Let's say you walked out of here last Sunday and say, I want to work with a holy intent. I want to work to glorify God. And as you began to do that, you noticed that some of the people that had no interest in a holy intent, they, they, they have no interest in glorifying God at this point in their life. They don't necessarily believe in him. They actually sometimes do better work than you do as far as their giftedness or as, as far as their quality. They may even be as much of a moral person as you are. And yet you're working out of a different motivation. How do you make sense of that? Here's another one. What do you do if somebody you're working with, it's a non-Christian, keeps getting promoted even though they may not be doing all the right things? How does that work? How come they have those kind of gifts? How can they pull that off? And these are some of the things that go through our minds when we think about work. We see what seems like unfairness at times or we see what seems to be just a disproportionate thing and we're trying to make sense of it. Well, the Bible actually gives us an understanding of what's going on here. And I want to talk with you about it today because it has changed my life and enabled me to work alongside non-Christians 
with a greater sense of cooperation and also a greater sense of wanting to learn more about their story and care more about them. Now, I think you know that in this last year, I've made a transition where, again, I'm more behind the scenes than before, but also I am giving, being given permission to work outside the church more often with leaders both outside and inside. This is something that's been developing for the last seven or eight years, and I'm learning that I get to come alongside business leaders and help them in their work, but also in learn from them. And again, this is all in the backdrop. So here's the question. If God is caring for our world, how does he do it? And the very first line in the notes there, if you're following along, is what I want you to see. Here's how it relates to our series. Work is a major instrument of God's loving provision for the world. Work is a major instrument of God's loving provision for the world. Have you ever thought about this? This was really helpful for me just to get above everything and realize that one of the ways that God is taking care of his world, one of the ways that sometimes he's holding back evil, some of the ways that he is actually doing things quietly in the world is through work. So let me just try and unpack this idea of common grace, because obviously we need to define it and explain how that plays into the way he provides. So first of all, if you're looking at this section, understanding common grace, what is it? If you're following along, it's God's unmerited goodness to all people. It's God's unmerited, undeserved goodness to all people. Have you ever stopped to think about this? God is good to all people to some degree. I'm not saying it's always equal in measure, as far as it's obvious in, in all cases, but God is good to all people. In fact, would you read with, that, read with me in that first gray box, Psalm 145, verse 9. Would you read it out loud with me, please? God is good to one and all. Everything he does is soaked through with grace. Now, in case you're wondering if that's just one verse in the Bible, Psalm 145, uh, I list out next Matthew 5, 45, and then also Luke 6, 35. Here's, here's what they say. Jesus once said this. If you love only those who love you, what more are you doing than others? Even the tax collectors do that. He said, God, our father, makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good. He sends rain on the just and on the unjust. What's that about? That's not fair, right? But he's saying, look, if you want to know God better, you need to understand that he gives whether a person deserves it or not. He is a generous God. He is gracious and good to all people. And if they look for it, they will see it. He is merciful. The second thing that is listed there is Luke 6.35, I told you, where he says there that he is merciful to the ungrateful and the wicked. I'm going, wait a second. Why waste your energy on those people, Right? But God is, and maybe you've seen this before, and maybe it bothers you. Someone once said, that doesn't seem fair. And I like how someone has said, fair ended in the Garden of Eden. See, when sin came into the world, (laughs) it's not about fair anymore. In fact, if you're all about fair, then you'll find out that you have not yet learned enough about grace. God's grace, he's good to all. So notice this, if you're following along is that God's loving care comes to us largely through the labor of others. God's loving care 
comes to us largely through the labor of others. I appreciate this. By the way, let me just go back and say, if you're still wondering what, what common grace means, common means something we all have in common. So while it may sound simple, and grace, someone is defined as undeserved favor, right? Unmerited goodness, undeserved favor. And when I was a kid, it was uh, grace was spelled God's riches at Christ's expense. God has done something generous to us, um, not because we deserve it, but because God is generous. So here's what one person has said about common grace. Common grace as an expression of the goodness of God is every favor falling short of salvation, which this undeserving and sin-cursed world enjoys at the hand of God. This includes the delay of wrath, the holding back at times of our sin natures, natural events that lead to prosperity, and all gifts that humans use and enjoy naturally. Common grace includes all undeserved blessings that natural man receives from the hand of God. Rain, sun, prosperity, health, happiness, natural capacities and gifts, sin being restrained from complete dominion. The doctrine of common grace explains how a man can be totally sinful and yet still commit acts that are in some sense good. This common grace, however, falls short of saving grace. All humans still need the saving work of the spirit to reconcile them to God. So there is this common grace going on around you and me. And one of the ways we see it is through work. God's loving care comes to us largely through the labors of others. Martin Luther taught a lot on this back in the Reformation in the 1600s. He and John Calvin are two of the people that are known for what's been called the Protestant work ethic. And the reason why work began to be so highly appreciated where it hadn't been before is because they taught that this is something that God has created us to do. It's noble, it's honorable when it's honest and good work, and it's something important. But notice what he, uh, Luther says, God feeds everything that has breath. Luther expounds the Psalms, especially Psalms 40, 145, 146, and 147, where it talks about how God feeds everything that has breath. He loves everything that he has made. And Luther then says, how does God feed everybody? Well, he feeds them through the farmer. He feeds them through the milkmaid who is milking the cow. Again, this is the 1600s. Not a lot of milkmaids around these days. He feeds them through the truck driver who is bringing the things to market. That is really God's work then. If you are just farming, you are doing God's work. It doesn't have to be a Christian farmer. You just do it and you share in God's work. And I love that image is that every day I enjoy some of the benefits of somebody else's labor. Now, I don't know if you thought about this and I don't know if you appreciate it, but the more that I've become more in tune with the fact that a whole bunch of people working around me are doing things that enable me to experience grace, to experience God's provision. And when I do that, when my eyes suddenly became more open about that, and I just started in my own city, to see the people that were doing that kind of work, it started changing me. Now, again, as we think about God's common grace, let me go on. God gifts, if you're following along, wisdom, talent, and skill to whom he chooses. God gifts wisdom, talent, and skill to whom he chooses. Interestingly, I've listed in that second gray box um, some verses from Isaiah. And let me just share them with you here. In fact, would you mind, I know it's got a lot of dot, dot, dots in it, but would you mind just reading it as it is there in that second gray box? Let's read it together. 
When a farmer plows for planting, God instructs him and teaches him the right way. All this also comes from the Lord Almighty, whose plan is wonderful, whose wisdom is magnificent. Now notice, he's saying that when a a farmer has learned how to plow and how to plant, how did he understand how to do that? He got it from God. God taught the farmer how to farm. God gives us understanding of how to do our work and to do it well. This is just totally remarkable. And he doesn't say a godly farmer, any farmer that knows how to do farming is sharing in God's work. But notice that means that he gives wisdom, he gives talent, he gives skill in order to accomplish work. And this is a powerful thing. You know, there's a number of cases in the Bible where it says that he used someone who didn't necessarily believe in him to do good work in the world. I'll give you one more example, and that's Isaiah 45. I've listed it out to the right as a reference, but here's what the verse actually says. This is what the Lord says to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I take hold of to subdue nations before him and to strip kings of their armor, to open doors before him so that gates will not be shut. I will go before you and will level the mountains, God says. I will break down the gates of bronze and cut through bars of iron. I will give you hidden treasures, riches stored in secret places, so that you may know that I am the Lord, the God of Israel, who summons you by name. For the sake of Jacob, my servant, of Israel, my chosen, I summon you by name and bestow on you a title of honor, though you do not acknowledge me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Apart from me, there is no God. I will strengthen you, though you have not acknowledged me, so that from the rising of the sun to the place of its setting, people may know that there is none besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. And it dropped down to verse 13. Here's what he continues saying. I will raise up Cyrus in my righteousness. I will make all his ways straight. He will rebuild my city and set my exiles free, but not for a price reward, says the Lord Almighty. Do you see what he's doing? He's working in a person who doesn't even acknowledge him. Why? For the sake of his working out his redeeming plan in the world. I am so thankful for all the ways that God chooses to work through people, believer or unbeliever alike, that actually lifts up this world. And I'm thankful for any goodness or virtue I observe in the world whether it's done by a Christian or a non-Christian. So when you think about that, have you met somebody that was more skilled than you and you had to wrestle with a little envy? There's a story years ago, um, uh, Amadeus was a movie that back when I was a youth pastor here in the 80s, I remember going to the old Fox Theater at Town and Country, and I'll never forget watching that movie. And in that movie, if you've never seen it, or there's also a play called Amadeus, Antonio Salieri is a court composer to the Habsburg emperor and a highly successful writer of operas. He has power and wealth, and yet he senses the mediocrity of what he has produced. Then he meets Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart and hears his music, and in a flash, he stands revealed to himself. He realizes that in Mozart's music, he is hearing the beauty he has aspired to create his entire life. But at the same moment, he knows that he will never be capable of producing it himself. Salieri, despite his dedication and experience, 
uh, wasn't good at composing music as much as he wanted to be. Yet in terms of outcomes, he was professionally accomplished, achieved high status, and enjoyed financial success. Meanwhile, Mozart was a musical prodigy with abundant gifts, yet he suffered rejection and poverty. Um, we can be sympathetic to Antonio Salieri. Here is a man who, inspire, who aspires to create extraordinary music, but instead is given modest talents. Being near Mozart shows him how ordinary his music is. He asked God to fill him with creative brilliance, but to no avail. Salieri becomes furious with God. So he says to God, from now on, we are enemies, you and I, because you will not enter me with all my need for you because you scorn my attempts. You are unjust, unfair, unkind. Salieri turns bitter against God and does what he can to destroy Mozart. Now, I bring that up because I'll never forget in the movie, it shows Mozart lives like a fool for the most part. He's morally reprehensible. He throws his gift away. He dies in poverty at 35 years old. And yet this man was given a gift that he literally could write an entire symphony in his mind. Amazing gift. And the music of Mozart, if you've ever heard it, you know it is some of the grandest, most inspiring music that's ever been written in our history. And yet, why did God do that? Because he gifts wisdom, talent, and skill. Praise his name to whom he chooses. He knows what he's doing. And it may not make sense to us on ground level, but we can at least appreciate his work. So in this way, if you're following along, both Christians and non-Christians share in God's work. In this way, both Christians and non-Christians share in God's work. So let me just stop here and say that one of the reasons I also, along with Brian, wanted to teach this series is because as a pastor, I realized that if you're spending the majority of your time during your lifetime at work, how, how do we break this crazy mentality that says what I'm doing is sacred and what most of you are doing is secular? That's simply not true, friends. If you understand that God has gifted you with wisdom, talent, and skill, if you understand that he has given you grace so that you can now work in the workplace differently, then what you're doing can be done to the glory of God. I love the story, the book, Practicing the Presence of God, where it talks about Brother Lawrence, who, although he was a monk, he was in charge of cooking the meals. And he said that he wanted to learn how to peel potatoes to the glory of God. When you and I understand this, we now no longer believe, like Brian said last week, we no longer see that division of sacred and secular. What you're doing, where you're placed by God, is just as important as what I'm doing. But we need to make sure that we remember that. And so if you're following along with God, we value all kinds of work that's done well. With God, we value all kinds of work that's done well. Out to the right, I list Ecclesiastes 9.10. And I love this verse. It's just very simple in the first few words of it. You mind reading it with me there on the screen? Whatever you do, do well. One of the things my parents taught me, I still think of this phrase from time to time. They said, Jeff, they taught my brother and sister this too, so I don't mean to say they just had to teach me. But they taught us this. They said, give yourself. Whatever you do, put your heart in it. Give yourself. 
whether it's shining your shoes, whether it's dusting your room, whether you're working for someone else, give yourself. Whatever you do, do it well, because that is what God made us to do. And when we value all kinds of work, we don't say, well, I'll do that well, but I'm not going to do this well. No, whatever we do, do it well. Here's another way the verse is translated in another translation of Ecclesiastes 9.10. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. This is one of the ways that God provides for the world. And you and I all know, here's the elephant in the room. We all know that there's a lot of work that gets done every day by non-Christians and unfortunately even by Christians that's not done well, that's not done wholeheartedly, that's not done in a way that God intended. But when it is, it's inspiring. Any work that's done well, even peeling potatoes, can be inspiring. This is what he wants us to understand. Now, again, here's just a couple quotes from the book that I mentioned to you. The first one by Timothy Keller. Actually, can we skip that one? Is that okay? Sorry about that. The fullness and balance of the biblical teaching prevents us from valuing only Christian work or only professional work. Instead, Christians should place a high value on all human work, especially excellent work done by all people as a channel of God's love for the world. They will be able to appreciate and rejoice in their own work, whether it is prestigious or not, as well as in the skillful work of all other people, whether those other people believe it or not. And again, one of the things Martin Luther said, uh, back to the milkmaid idea, again, I know this is a little bit dated, but I still think the point is well made because those people were considered lower class in his day. Look at this, a poor milkmaid milking, if done in faith, is more glorious than the conquest and triumphs of Caesar or Alexander the Great. God sees in corners of the world and he sees whether or not we're doing our work well. If we're doing our work the way we were made to, if we're honoring him that way, and if we're letting his grace flow through us that way. Here's one more quote by Timothy Keller from that book, Every Good Endeavor. So through his common grace, God blesses all people so that Christians can benefit from and cooperate with non-Christians. However, there are limitations to common grace, which require us to respond to these blessings with balance. And that's what I want to talk to you now. What is it? How do we know the balance of common grace? If you're following along in the notes, here's what I want us to see is that God wants every person to know his saving grace. God wants every person to know his saving grace. Rick Warren said years ago that when we stand before God and both Romans 14 and 2 Corinthians 5 in the New Testament tell us that every person, including those we work alongside, will one day stand before God on judgment day and give an account for what we've done. Rick Warren suggests that God will ask us two questions. What did you do with what I gave you? And what did you do with my son, Jesus Christ? Those will be two key questions on that day. You see, if the Bible is true, that God actually made us and created us for a relationship with him and to do meaningful work with him, then it does matter how we live. And that does mean that the Bible is right, that we return to stand before God and give an account for whether or not we stewarded the life he gave us in the way he intended and I don't know about you, but just even thinking about that makes me more interested in grace right away. 
because I know something about myself. I know that when the Bible says I have fallen short of God's glory and his intention for my life, I've done it many ways and many times. And most of all, the Bible says that sin is not so much doing wrong things as much as an independent spirit from God. When you and I orient our life on any given day around ourselves, or we do not live with God and do things with God, we are living independently spirited. And that is the whole rebellion that's created the problem in the first place. And so what do we understand about this? How do we understand that all of us, all of us need his saving grace? Because if we do all kinds of good things with all the talents he's given us, we still have to stand before God and we are made for eternity. Where will we spend it? And so if you're following along in the notes, you'll see that I've listed out to the right, 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 6. Look at what it says. I found this very helpful. I urge you, he's writing to believers now, first of all, to pray for how many people, friends? Does that mean just Christians? No, to pray for all people. Ask God to help them intercede on their behalf. And here's an interesting phrase, give thanks for them. Is there somebody you need to give thanks for that you work alongside that maybe you haven't appreciated in a while? Pray this way for kings and all who are in authority so that we can live peaceful and quiet lives marked by godliness and dignity. This is good and pleases God our Savior who wants how many people to be saved, friends? (laughs) Do we have any idea how much God loves the people we work alongside? Do we have any idea? He wants everyone to be saved and to understand the truth. For there is one God and one mediator who can reconcile God and humanity, the man Christ Jesus. He gave his life to purchase freedom for everyone. This is the message God gave to the world at just the right time. And then out to the right of this, 2 Peter 3, 9 where it says that God is not slow in returning as he promised. He's, you know, Jesus said, I'm coming back. So why hasn't he come back yet? The Bible tells us is that he's being patient with us, not wanting anyone to perish, but wanting all to come to repentance. There is coming a day, friends, where just having common grace in your life is not going to be enough. And yet it's still a precious gift in itself. We need saving grace. Now, notice this, that along with saving grace, we need to work in a way that wins the respect of outsiders. When you and I think about the grace that he gives us, what are we supposed to do with that? His grace should work in us a want to and a get to spirit, where now we are obeying God out of a a thank you heart, not just in trying to somehow perform up to what he wants, but because he's already made us right with him. We don't have to work at that anymore. We're now his children. We're dearly loved people of his. And now we live in a different way. But here's the thing. There's a verse in the Bible, 2 Corinthians 6, 1, that says, do not receive the grace of God in vain. Don't don't let his generosity to you make you go, keep it coming, God. I have no interest in doing anything with it. No, he's saying, let that grace work in you, a new energy, a new gratitude, a new way of working so that now you see every day as a privilege. You see every day as an opportunity. And you see also an opportunity to do your work in such a way that if there's any possible way to win their respect, 
The way you do your work will win their respect. I love these verses that I've listed up to the right. Genesis 39. Some of you may have seen this in the Old Testament, but Joseph is working for the uh, second in command in Egypt. He gets there because his brothers sell him. He doesn't even want to be there, right? Because it's unfair. But what does he do once he arrives? Look at these verses in Genesis 39. The Lord was with Joseph so that he prospered and he lived in the house of his Egyptian master. When his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord gave him success in everything he did, Joseph found favor in his eyes and became his attendant. Potiphar put him in charge of his household and he entrusted to his care everything he owned. From the time he put him in charge of the house, his household and all that he owned, the Lord blessed the household of the Egyptian because of Joseph. Did you see the blessing? The blessing of the Lord was on everything Potiphar had, both in the house and in the field. So Potiphar left everything he had in Joseph's care. Smart move. With Joseph in charge, he did not concern himself with anything except the food he ate. Let me ask you, can your boss trust you? Can your manager say, ever since they joined our team, things have been lifted up? I know when I give them that assignment, they will do everything they can to do it well. Oh, what a powerful thing. That's one of the ways God blesses people that don't yet know him is through you and me doing our labor well. But notice these other verses that I've listed up to the right. First Thessalonians 4, 11 and 12. I've listed it in the third grade box. Would you read that with me as well? Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. You should mind your own business and work with your hands, just as we told you, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders. The last thing about the balance of common grace is that you and I are placed where we are for however long the season is. Like some of you are saying, hey, Jeff, I don't like my job right now, and I may be eventually leaving. Until you leave, do it well. Because it may be a season for you to change. But notice, there's something you can do while you're working alongside. Here it is, if you're following along. Pray for your coworkers and be ready to share Jesus. Pray for your coworkers and be ready to share Jesus. Again, there's a lot I can show you, but here's just one passage, Colossians 4, 2 and 6. Look at what it says. Devote yourselves to prayer. Now, is that just when you're at church? It becomes a lifestyle. You realize you can pray all the time? You can pray while you work. How do I know that? Because I watched Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. <laughs> and I know if you can whistle while you work, you can pray while you work. Right? You and I can learn how to do that. Being watchful and thankful. In other words, keep your eyes open, but be thankful where God's placed you. Be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. Here's one more passage, 1 Peter 3. Look at what it says here as well. Through thick and thin, keep your hearts at attention and adoration before Christ, your master. Be ready to speak up and tell anyone who asks why you're living the way you are and always with the utmost courtesy. Keep a clear conscience before God so that when people throw mud at you, none of it will stick. They'll end up realizing that they're the ones who need a bath. It's better to suffer for doing good if that's what God wants than to be punished for doing bad. That's what Christ did definitively. Praise God. I'm so thankful for him. 
So uh, Timothy Keller tells a story in his book about one example where a manager just led, lived a quiet life. He minded his own business, but also he lived in such a way that he won the respect of outsiders. He says this, years ago, I heard one unforgettable example of a Christian who showed this kind of integrity and compassion. Not long after we began our new church in New York City, I saw a young woman who was obviously visiting and darting out after each service. One week, I intercepted her. She told me she was exploring Christianity. She didn't believe in it at that point, but she found a lot of it interesting. I asked her how she had found Redeemer Church, and she told me this story. She worked for a company in Manhattan, and not long after starting there, she made a big mistake that she thought would cost her her job. But her boss went in to his superior and took complete responsibility for what she had done. As a result, he lost some of his reputation and ability to maneuver within the organization. She was amazed at what he had done and went in to thank him. She told him that she had often seen supervisors take credit for what she had accomplished, but she had never seen a supervisor take the blame for something she had done wrong. She wanted to know what made him different. He was very modest and deflected her questions, but she was insistent. Finally, he told her, look, because you're insisting, I'm a Christian. That means, among other things, that God accepts me because Jesus Christ took the blame for things that I have done wrong. He did that on the cross. That is why I have the desire and sometimes the ability to take the blame for others. She stared at him for a long moment and asked, where do you go to church? He suggested she go to Redeemer, and so she did. His character had been shaped by his experience of grace in the gospel, and it made his behavior as a manager attractive and strikingly different from that of others. This lack of self-interest and ruthlessness on the part of her supervisor was eventually life-transforming for her. Now, friends, as we come to this last part, let me just again share a couple Keller quotes from the book before I wrap this up. Look at what he says. Christians work with others should be marked by both humble cooperation and respectful provocation. An understanding of common grace, as well as an experience of God's pardoning grace in Christ, should lead us to freely and humbly work with others who may not share our faith, but can be used greatly by God to accomplish enormous good. At the same time, an understanding of the gospel worldview means we should at times respectfully pursue a different path or winsomely point out how our own Christian faith gives us powerful resources and guidance for what we are doing. And here's one more. Ultimately, a grasp of the gospel and of biblical teaching on cultural engagement should lead Christians to be the most appreciative of the hands of God behind the work of our colleagues and neighbors. So let me just share a little bit of how this changed my life. So I told you that we've been doing this class uh, early in the mornings uh, for eight weeks at a time over the last two or three years, Mike O'Shea and I. And, um, and so I've had the opportunity to stand in front of many of those people and say, what you're doing in our city is making our city better. I am so thankful that you give yourself to the work you're doing because when you do that well, everything in our city gets better in your corner of the world. Now, let me just be honest with you. I have a dear friend who does not believe in Christ, but he's one of the most exemplary, outstanding human beings I have ever met. And I remember there was a time when I was afraid to compliment him because I thought that maybe that would make him less interested in Christ. 
You know what I mean? Like, if I made him think that he was a good person, then he wouldn't realize he was a sinner. Is this making sense? Is anybody going through anybody's mind the same way? And all of a sudden, God said to me, you don't understand the reason why he is the way he is is because of my grace. He doesn't know that yet. But you can still compliment him because when you compliment him, you're complimenting me. And I began to do that. And I'm no longer afraid when I see different people who may not share my faith. I begin to compliment them more and thank them for it and be appreciative. That doesn't mean I don't look for opportunities. Friends, let me say this. If you're practicing, if I'm practicing this praying for and winning the respect of outsiders, I've noticed this, that when I wake up in the morning and pray for opportunities, when I rub shoulders with people who don't yet believe in Christ, I have noticed that those opportunities tend to arise more often. But if I decide hey, I'm just going to work where I am and just pay attention to myself and not care about anybody around me or be appreciative of how God's using them too, then all of a sudden I cut myself off from one of the bigger purposes of why he's put me where he's put me. And so again, in these coming months and years, as I spend more time with people outside as well as inside our church, I am thankful for the opportunity to practice this. Now, if you're following along, notice this. God, and by the way, can you keep your notes open because something's on the back I want to talk to you about. God, help me appreciate your common grace as I give my best. God, help me appreciate your common grace as I give my best. If you turn your notes over, two weeks ago, I mentioned to you about this eight-week study. And some of you, um, uh, because especially the way I mentioned it in the nine o'clock service that day, a lot of you go, where do I sign up? How do I sign up? And I said, that information will be forthcoming. Now, I want you to know that there's already some people that I know have been invited by Mike O'Shea to this, so their space is limited this first round, but we're going to be doing this more than once. But if you want to know more, again, about this book and how to study it, then please know that it would be from 6.30 to 7.30 on Wednesday mornings, August 17th through October 5th. Uh, It's at O'Shea University behind Target and Walmart. Uh, There is no charge. Uh, He provides breakfast and a copy of the book. But again, let me say this. If you are interested in signing up, you can email that address. You can see it there on the screen if you're watching online. But here's the only thing I'd say. Sometimes Cherry Hills people are famous for signing up and not showing up. I don't know where that is, but I would just say, if you're one of those people, can I ask you not to sign up so that the people that need the space will have it? But again, if you know you can show up for the better part of these eight weeks, may only have to miss one or two at the most, then we would love to do this with you. And what it does is it gets you sitting at small group tables talking about this book and chapters that you read together. And I've watched it literally lift the nobility and the honor of work in our community. And people are working with more purpose. And some people are even becoming more interested in Christ. But the goal is to try and see how we can, again, Do everything we can, both to lift up this community and also be ready to share the good news that God has given us. So as we close and we get ready uh, to prepare for communion, let me just say one thing to you that's helped me this week. So I can talk to you all about this and I can say, here's what we all need to think about. But here's where the rubs come for me. Over a period of time, because I've now walked with Christ for over 45 years, I've noticed that the ongoing challenge for me is this subtle self-righteousness. Here's how it works. Well, I have saving grace. They only have common grace. (laughs) So here's how I've 
here's how I've tried to counteract that. God, remind me that I need saving grace as much as they need saving grace. Please show us both that saving grace. And when you begin to just pray like that, now the heart of God is working in you the way he wants us to. And some of you are retired, but he still wants you to work in some ways and find things to do. And so whatever it is, whatever it might be, can you and I just say, God, remind me that I need your saving grace as much as that person right now that I'm working next to that I don't know what to do with. So here's what I'd like to just suggest we do before we take communion. Who comes to your mind when you think about working alongside of them that doesn't share your faith? Who comes to your mind? Or maybe someone that you used to work with that comes to your mind. Is there anybody that comes to your mind that God wants you to look at that person with eyes of grace? That he wants you to be a blessing and ask for God's blessing to fall on that person, whether they are ready or not, whether they care about God yet or not. Who might it be? Just take a moment. Thanks for joining us today. If you would like more information about our church, visit our website or find us on Facebook. Have a great day.